0: Welcome to episode 26 of Flying Podcast. Recently, I was contacted by Flight Lieutenant Stu Walker, based at the Defence Helicopter Flying School. He invited me down to RAF Shawbury, home of the DHFS, to do a podcast. As it turned out, I stayed for two days and did interviews with, uh, I think it was ten people in all, from student helicopter pilots right up to the Commandant. As you can imagine, that's probably too many interviews to fit into one podcast, so I'll break it down into three. In the first episode, I'll be chatting to Group Captain Jock Brown, the Commandant of the Defence Helicopter Flying School, and then I'll be interviewing the two instructors that head up the single-engine basic and the single-engine advanced rotary wing training squadrons, where all trainee helicopter pilots from uh, every branch of the armed forces begin their training. So let's begin the podcast with the Commandant, Jock Brown, who gave me an overview of the Defence Helicopter Flying School's role, how the unit fits into the local community... And what the future holds for DHFS. Uh, Good afternoon Jock. Good afternoon Steve. Uh, I wonder to start with if you could give me a a brief history of DHFS.
1: Sure thing. DHFS was uh, formed in 1997 uh, through the defence cost studies which showed that there are certain aspects of defence training that could be delivered in a joint environment making it better value for money. And one of those aspects they looked at was helicopter training, because all three services did it. Uh, and it certainly made sense to corral it as much as possible in one school, and it was grown up from there, really, where the three services were pushed together. Uh, and we are now some 13 years along line, uh, and in a really good position with the three services all being trained at the basic level here, and definitely delivering you know, for defence what we need to
0: Uh, What is the role of the uh, Defence Helicopter Flying School, would you say?
1: Well, there's, I mean, very very many roles that we deliver here, but uh, the clear objective for me and my prime aim is to train ab initio, so straight out of training helicopter pilots and crewmen uh, for the Air Force and pilots for the Army and the Navy. And really, in essence, the way I like to describe it to them is to create that solid, strong foundation that they can build on as they go through the training on their operational types. I also undertake a myriad of other training courses such as introducing Harrier pilots or future Harrier pilots to the, 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 the fact that they can now hover an aircraft. Mm-hmm, yeah. So we train them in the basis of that before they move on.
0: Okay, uh, Now there's several squadrons here, are the squadrons split by force? Navy, RAF, etc. Well
1: well they are. There's a school in its construct and of course by pulling all the the three services together in the early days meant that we ended up with uh, an Air Force squadron or two Air Force units, a Navy squadron and an Army squadron. But they're really just badged under that name and certainly there's an ethos on that squadron that follows the single service aspects and that's what keeps us strong in the joint environment. But uh, no, 660 Army Air Squadron is the Army Squadron, which is commanded by uh, an Army uh, commanding officer, uh, although the staff below him are not just Army. They're mm-hmm. very much uh, contracted staff and service from all three services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the students, of course, are all three services together. Same with the Navy Squadron. It's, uh, it's commanded by uh, a Naval CO. Uh, but the staff, uh, again, are split between the three services and indeed the contracted staff. Excellent. Uh, now, how many
0: students pass through each year, would you
1: say? Uh, it's, it, it's clearly uh, a, a, an ever-changing feast, this, but uh, certainly at the moment we are, we are prime in resource and we're working really hard to deliver for defence. But round about uh, 200 ab students come through here, although I will train around 450 personnel. Uh, Some of those are just doing refreshers, the Harrier course that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. we have naval rear crew that we don't do the full course with, as well as uh, 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 several other nations who actually come in and
0: get some element of training here. That was going to be my next question. You obviously train foreign students here.
1: We do. It's, it's, It's really, really important for me to make sure I ma- maintain my status really as one of the best helicopter flying schools in the world. Obviously, I would say it is the best, uh, and I'm fairly confident in saying that, but uh, part of the litmus test, if you want for that, is the fact that I can outreach to the rest of the world and sell the training that I deliver here. And at any time here, we could have five or six different nations, not only within the Commonwealth, but uh, from the Middle East, uh, from the from the States. Out as far as Australia.
0: Yes, strangely enough, I sat at lunch with a, a Portuguese guy who's uh, training to become a, a flying instructor. Yes,
1: he is. Yeah, he's doing the, the Central Flying School helicopter course as we speak. Here, there's also uh, one of my staff here is uh, Jordanian, and he's also on the same course with them. And he'll uh, become, he'll do the instructor's course, and then he'll join uh, Six Sixty Army Air Corps Squadron when he, when he's finished his course, and he'll do a tour here as part of my staff. And I also have a, a couple of Algerian instructors training UK pilots.
0: Right. Uh, you mentioned, is it 200 ab pilots a year?
1: Yeah, for, for 200 from all three services. Okay. Why so many? Well, I, I say that. It's not just pilots, it's yeah. about 160 pilots and 40 uh, Air Force rear crew. Yeah. Uh, really, uh, I, the, the, the forces is, uh, is another changing feast Mm -hmm. and uh, certainly the operational tempo we've got now uh, that people are really busy so we we, When they reach the end of their career pilots and uh, rear crew uh, You know choose to move on and they've done their time and service Uh, some will stay until They're 55 some will leave at other break points that we have to keep them fresh uh, And they move on so we have a, a, a you know a natural rotational rate so we have to have new young blood if you want coming in at the bottom is the uh, the old guys similar to myself really reach the peak (laughs) of their uh, time and start to look elsewhere for employment. Uh, uh, Not that I am at the moment I've (laughs) got the best job in there for (laughs) some exceptionally content but uh, there is a a natural loss rate Mm -hmm. uh, that we suffer. We also you know have people who get injured and who perhaps lose their medical cats and can't fly anymore so
0: we have to refresh it really and it keeps us strong of course, most people coming out of here are heading for active service on front line. Uh, well,
1: all all the, the UK personnel who are coming out of here are headed for active service. There's, yeah. there's no one that's not, whether that be uh, in the UK SAR Force uh, or indeed uh, on the Joint Helicopter Command's frontline commitments as we currently have in uh, Afghanistan and further afield.
0: Yeah. Just a sideline here how many. Tools of duty would you be expected to do, say in Afghanistan before you no longer have to fly front line, or is it a never ending thing? You no,
1: know, yeah, aircrew who are uh, signed up and working on the front line will do. Uh, it, it varies depending they could move aircraft types, but uh, you know we, we we try and keep uh, a harmony basis for our crews, which uh, gives them a period in in theatre and then uh, a number of periods off before mm-hmm. they go back in. But it's uh, it's a, it's a dif- difficult thing to pin on some will do more some will do less depending on whether they move into you know becoming an instructor or change types which means they have to do another conversion so it keeps them off the front line for a bit or indeed they come up here uh, become an instructor and remain here yep. so it will give them a couple of years out of the front line duties and really you know essential for a bit of a rest to refresh them before they go back out but yep. it's, I, I couldn't really pin an, an sure. exact okay. number onto that but it's several tours if that helps okay. but uh, probably doesn't
0: uh, DHFS is clearly run by the MOD, and you're in charge but I believe there's a significant civilian input into the running of the, uh, the place? There
1: is, uh, when the contract was set up in 1997 we tendered for proposals and the, the, the bidder that won was FB Heli Services, the company that's still here today uh, e- exceptional service, it's a real partnership this and I think that the the, the the partnership we have is held up in um, in the ministries sort of a, as the the partnership of choice. You know mm-hmm. we've got a lot of good practice here. Yeah. We're very mature in our relationship, and the company provide forty percent of my instructors, all ex-military. Uh, some who have just left, and may even have left from here before they move on. Some who have been here for the, the entire part of the contract as well as all their engineering and their aircraft are owned by the company although they maintain military
0: registration. Okay. Now, when I was outside the uh, the base this morning waiting before I came in, there was one or two uh, tornadoes and typhoons took off and yeah. you know, rattling the windows.
1: Yeah, and indeed the Red Arrows were here <laughs> as of well. Of course,
0: one by yeah. one the Red Arrows went out. So I presume you have a, a community relations job to do here. And
1: uh, well, we'll do, it's interesting you put the two together, Fast Jets and the community relations. We, uh, it, we, we were the relief uh, landing site for the Cosford Air Show this week. so yeah.
0: It's not a normal thing to happen. No, fast it's Jets going in it, here. It, it, we,
1: we have the occasional ones because we have some storage facilities here where we uh, store some aircraft. and uh, We also service the, the Hawk aircraft here. So we see the occasional jets in and around and sometimes the Harriers will come here to, to operate for short periods. Uh, but we're, we're, we sit within here a dedicated user area, which is dedicated to to my helicopter training. Because as you can imagine, I've got an awful lot of helicopters yeah. in, a, in a fairly small piece of real estate in terms of the wider UK. How so many I, helicopters do we have? There? We've got four, uh, all told under the Defence Helicopter Flying School, we've got 40. Right. Uh, but they're split between here and RAF Valley. Uh, so, we, so we've got a lot of people who are uh, doing things, and, and we. we couldn't really mix too much fixed wing flying with what we do because it, it, it would take time and detract from mm-hmm. the training. So we're very much protected here. So the, the community doesn't see that much fast tra- jet traffic because we are here. Yeah. Uh, that's not great. Uh, it times for them because they still, we, we night fly most nights until two in the morning mm-hmm. or most mornings until two in the morning, which can be slightly aggravating as the warm as the warmer weather comes in and windows are left open yeah. uh, we, we know we're a bit of a nuisance at times to them but
0: uh, we do our best to uh, most people are quite understanding realising we're training uh, for
1: uh, absolutely the for vast the majority of people here do understand that we are the first line of training people to go to war for the country yeah. uh, there's, there's always the occasional one who, who doesn't and uh, I, I fully understand you know we can be very very noisy uh, but we do our best to to move areas, to get out and ch- change the or change the noise footprint as much as we can.
0: Yep. I'm talking to the uh, to a balloonist. He actively avoids piggeries.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And he hasn't has marked on his map, so yes, he, uh, consciously avoids them because it scares the <laughs> <laughs> like Well, it's
1: it's interesting. I mean, mo- most of the livestock in Shropshire are, are very aware of us, and, <laughs> and actually they don't bother that much. Yeah. It's, uh It's usually, you know, whether it be horses or chicken farms is a big issue for us because we we avoid them as much as we can. The traditional battery farm uh, chicken establishment, if you want, uh, it was very easy to see the long, low-lying barns and uh, you you could avoid it as much as possible. Now, of course, is very much into free-range chicken farms and you can't see them because they're just netted within normal fields and quite often we'll be over the top of them before we see them, uh, which is a real shame. There's also a lot of uh, horse uh, work around this area and again uh, quite a few of the riders still don't wear the service provided fluorescent jackets so mm-hmm. it's very very difficult to see them in such a rural area. Does
0: a helicopter cause that much problem to It's more of a sort of a slowly building mm-hmm. noise? and th-
1: that, that is th- the problem. Sometimes it is but if we're at low level then we don't really build up. If we're yeah. at high level it... it it's not so bad because they get a chance to see it, but every yeah. animal is different, sure, uh, you know, yeah. can have a bad day the same as you and I can. Oh, maybe. Yes, yes, yes. But we, 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 we do our best and we have uh, really strong links with the, the horse societies in the local areas and with the farmers union here uh, and you know we educate them, they educate us and we do yeah. our best as far as possible to avoid the areas where we know uh, there are fresh chicken batches if you yeah. wish they get used to us, though, but actually, uh, as a chicken farmer told me, it's not actually the noise that gets them, it's more the shadow, and that will be where the balloon <laughs> operator <laughs> will come from, because they, uh, in their psyche, they, they see a shadow passing, and it's mm-hmm. very much the bird of prey sort yeah, of scenario, yeah. where they see the shadow first, and they run for cover. Yeah. Uh, however, every animal's different, but uh, you know, we, can't, we can't avoid everywhere. No. Uh, we do our best. You, d- you do have uh, but some we have dedicated
0: landing areas, don't
1: you? That, uh, we do. Our local farmers here, and it's really through long before the, the school was set up as a defence helicopter flying school, because uh, equally I trained here long before I was part of the, this became DHFS. Uh, and, and we've, we've grown a, with a great relationship with our local farmers, and we have well over 100 farmers who provided land free for use by the MOD, so we can... Uh, make use of confined spaces for mm-hmm. the the guys to train and areas away so we can move around Shropshire yeah. again to change our noise footprint as often as we can yeah. and really without their support uh, life here would become incredibly difficult to train these people because they need to understand sure. what it's like to find confined spaces before we end up putting them into yeah. areas yeah. in Afghanistan.
0: In terms of community relations, I know that you do do an awful lot of other things, don't you, in uh, the
1: community? Yep we do, uh, at all levels, really, uh, from the squadrons getting out doing community relations projects uh, where we can help out local communities that perhaps need you know, dig, ditches dug or village ponds cleared out or work with local schools, uh, as much outreach as we can with mm-hmm. them. We also, here in the wider RAF Shawbury piece, bring in local children to walk on our high ropes in the, the gym uh, as well as getting a taste for uh, sort of service life and discipline if you wish uh, within perhaps people who may have slightly strayed off a line. So we, we, we do as much as we can with the local authorities in that respect and I spend quite a lot of time with the local mayors and the local commu- uh, community councils and county councils to really educate them on what it is we do and mm-hmm. why we
0: have to do yep. and continue to do what we, what we are up to here. Great stuff. And talking about continuing to do, what do you think the, the future is for DHFS?
1: Well, I, the future is quite strong. I mean, clearly in this environment with the, the finances, uh, it's quite hard to say where we're going to be in the future. And I'm sure you're aware of the Strategic Defence and Security Review that uh, we're currently in the process of that mm-hmm. should report something around the autumn. Uh, so it'd be uh, qu- quite strange for me to to make great statements now that may not come to fruition, because uh, it'd very much be the, be the world world according to Jock Brown. And I'd hate to to mislead. But uh, I think you know that the the strategic picture that we see ourselves in, and the current uh, war that we are, we're engaged in in mm-hmm. Afghanistan isn't going away yep. in the immediate future. Uh, and we are very much required, so there will always be a need to train helicopter crews. The area we have here in Shropshire fits that bill pretty spectacularly, so I'd suggest the school's future uh, is very secure and indeed may may grow, we've got more people to train. But I've got better ways to train, so that doesn't necessarily mean a bigger burden on the community in terms of flying hours, I can use more synthetics as we move to the future. But uh, there's also the new military flying training system that's due to come into being around 2015-2017 time for the the Rotary community, which may change the the piece here somewhat as we try and reduce the training gap uh, between what we currently deliver at my school here with very basic, quite old aircraft now in terms of just pure age. They're very Mm -hmm. well maintained, uh, but they're they're still analogue Mm-hmm. In terms of the cockpits, of so the traditional dials, yes. whereas frontline aircraft are now TV screens. So I need to update them. So I'm teaching uh, the youth of today on the TV screen. And maybe they're better than I am in terms <laughs> of the PlayStation communities. Yep, yep. But uh, we need to just train them on aircraft that are going to look, our cockpits look like the future yep. is. And we're, and we're getting there. We're doing much to do that now. But really, I think we need to look to
0: refresh our airframes. When we can. Okay. And currently, what do you fly?
1: Currently, here uh, the the mainstay of what we deliver here is the the squirrel. That's the single aircraft, engine. the single engine aircraft, and that's uh, in two different variants. Very similar, you yeah. wouldn't know the difference, but one provides a little bit more than the other. Uh, and the Griffin aircraft, the much bigger one, uh, which uh, again has a couple of variants. Uh, people may see a grey one flying around, which is. Uh, a search and rescue variant that used to be in Cyprus that we now use here. As well as uh, people will see Augusta Westland 109s flying around, which is, again, part of the FB Heli Services contracted aspect, and our latest part that's uh, flying in our fleet at the moment is the Augusta Westland 139, very much state-of-the-art and involved in certain degrees of search and rescue training up at Valley, but it, does, it is seen around here every now and then. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Jock. No problem at all. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Group Captain Jock Brown. In the second half of this episode, I'm talking to the squadron leaders of the two squadrons that teach single-engine helicopter flying, both basic and advanced, here at the Defence Helicopter Flying School. That's Major Sasha Zveginsov, also known as Zog, and Lieutenant Commander Mark Scott, a.k.a. Scotty. They gave me an overview of the training syllabus for helicopter pilots from all of the armed forces. Okay, Scotty and Zug, um, you guys are from 705 and 660 Squadron. Do they basically do the same job on the, on the base?
2: Yeah, hi, I'm Scotty. I'm from uh, 705 Naval Air Squadron, which historically um, is a naval squadron which used to be based down at Royal Naval Air Station, Koudros. And then uh, in 1997, when we formed the Defence Helicopter Flying School, uh, it was an amalgamation of all the three services which brought the RAF, the Army, and the Royal Navy together. Um, and 705 uh, Naval Air Squadron, along with uh, Zog here on 660 Squadron, we now teach the whole syllabus, helicopter flying training syllabus. Yes, yeah, So we both do the same thing. Okay. Similar, but different.
0: you Army-based?
2: Yeah, hi, I'm Zog, I command uh,
3: 660 Squadron Army Air Corps, obviously part of the Defence Helicopter Flying School as well. Um, 660 Squadron was originally a uh, squadron, um, well, formerly a squadron uh, in Hong Kong, Uh, was disbanded and then reformed uh, on the inception of uh, Defence Helicopter Flying School 13 years ago.
0: Okay. And you take people through the single engine basic rotary wing and the advanced rotary wing courses. Yeah, uh,
3: what, uh, what happened a year ago is everything changed. Originally 660 Squadron uh, Army Air Corps took uh, students through the basic rotary wing syllabus and 705 took them through the advanced syllabus. Now what's happened is we've, uh, we mirror each other and we both do
0: both syllabuses. Okay, syllabi. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, Prior to arriving at Shawbury, what sort of training would you have expected someone to have had?
2: It depends what service, actually, okay. um, as to what they've done. Um, the Army and the Royal Navy come through Barxton, and they do slightly differently, uh, slightly different syllabus on the grob. Um, in fact, it's a shooter Firefly, isn't it? No, grob. It no. is a grob now, yeah. is it? There you go. Okay. Um, they arrive here... Uh, and we then introduced them to the helicopter. The RAF could have come through a whole number of different ways. They could have done UAS, University Air Squadron, um, where over a four-year degree they could end up with you know anywhere 50, 60 hours. We also have a number of restreamed aircrew. Now, they can come from a whole manner of places. We've got a number of guys on the squadron at the moment that are restreamed fast jet. Uh, they haven't been chopped from their flying training. They've just come to the end of their fast jet career. We've got multi-engine guys that come to us with a lot of hours. Um, But we are designed for the Abinitio pipeline.
0: And Uh, they would have come from like a a GA fixed-wing training background?
2: Very much so. Single engine. um, And then we transfer most of those skills across to the helicopter with teaching them effects of controls. Uh, Where is the training carried out? You've mentioned some of it there, but for the different
0: services, where do they... Get
3: their, uh, Navy and Army um, are sort of co located at Boxton Heath yep. um, and the uh, RAF uh, do it in a variety of places but it's predominantly sort of we get some um, students from Witten and RAF Cramble. As well before they arrive here. And that's this sort of admin issue. They've gone through elementary flying training on the fixed wing. They'll generally at that level of training have a, a roughly the same amount of hours, somewhere between sort of sixty and eighty hours in a fixed wing aircraft, notwithstanding what Scott has just spoken about, part, people that are restreaming from other parts of the RAF or the Navy. We do also <coughs> get um, people from are uh, restreamed from fixed wing and multi engine courses that haven't managed to pass that particular course and get an option to come back down to rotary if they're deemed suitable.
0: Okay. Uh, what sort of assessment do you look for in your potential pilots?
2: Well, <clears throat> that's quite a good question, actually, because we start off by taking the assessment that's been made by the, the previous unit. Um, the first hurdle for them is ground school here, where they will have to learn a number of ground school subjects, technical subjects on the aircraft, meteorology, air law, uh, and systems uh, on successful completion of ground school, they then come to us for the flying syllabus, and every sortie is assessed uh, as to their suitability for future flying training so it 's not uh, a course where we wait till the end of the course to assess whether they move on. We have a number of phase checks depending on what we 're training them to do at the particular time, which i 'm sure we 'll come on to in a moment, but The course itself is like a continual assessment.
0: Okay. So going on to the the basic (coughs) rotary wing course. When someone arrives at Shawbury, which squadron do they join?
3: Well, they join both squadrons now. And at the moment, as it's played out. even course numbers will come to six sixty scores, and okay. odd course numbers will so come to seventy five. So it's exactly mirrored. Right. Basically, two scores and do exactly the same thing. And I see
0: the guys walking around with numbers on. That's the the course number. Yes, that's right. right. Okay. Yeah. What sort of timings are involved in the various elements of the uh, the syllabus in terms of weeks doing different parts, as ground school, etc.?
3: They'll, uh, Scotty just spoken about the ground school. They generally come and do four weeks of um, ground school training before they actually start flying the aircraft and arrive properly on the squadrons. Um, the basic part of the course is nine to ten weeks long, depending on which part of the time of the year it is, before they then go back in and do another week of ground school. Uh, they'll then come back out for the advanced phase, which will be another ten weeks um, before they then complete and uh, go on to couple of bespoke courses before moving to uh, single service training.
0: Now, what exactly is involved in, uh, in the various elements for in, in ground school? Is that very similar to like if you were tra- training for your helicopter, your PPL?
2: The training that they do here now mirrors private pilot's license, brackets, helicopters, because that's actually a qualification that Anybody that successfully completes the Defence Helicopter Flying School um, could get. Yes. There's a number of exams which they need to do, which we don't do in the military. One is air law and the other, strangely enough, is the radio telephony exam. But they can be organised locally. And by completing just those two sorties, uh, those two exams, sorry, uh, they can then pay... Lots of money, I think, to get their PPLH. Yeah, yeah. So the exams that they do are meteorology, looking at uh, developing the ability to be able to forecast the weather based on the synopsis that comes out of the, uh, uh, the MET charts and the data that's given to us in the morning. They also be able to have to be able to assess the conditions of the day uh, and then decide as to whether those conditions are suitable to go flying in. Uh, Overlaid on the top of that, they then have to know airspace rules and regulations, uh, and along with that, the planning that is required to safely get airborne, conduct whatever the mission sortie is, uh, and then get back safely. Okay. And the simulator training involved at at basic level as well? well? We've got to be careful with the use of the word simulator. We use other methods on the ground to help them teach. At this stage of flying training, we don't have any simulators. We have on-computers emulators where they can look at the engine systems starting up and get familiar with how the hydraulic systems, the electrics and the fuel systems work. We then have a number of um, cockpit procedural trainers where they can go in and do their checks. Uh, And then we have a part-task trainer which uh, we have three presently here at the moment. For the instrument flying phase, we have a Microsoft simulator uh, cockpit, which was made by one of my staff, which allows them to go off and fly the whole of the instrument flying package. It's not procedural IF, but it brings them up to the required standard in the military. We've also got a navigation trainer, which um, doesn't resemble a helicopter at all in the form of a cockpit, but the projection of the local area onto the wall allows them to use the local or the correct procedures uh, to fly. And uh, newly introduced is a a quite swish part-task trainer, which has got something like six screens, um, uh, limited motion in the cockpit, um, and we are looking at downloading elements of actual airborne instruction down to the part-time trainer, which gives you some idea of the, the reality and realism involved. Okay.
0: Are there any elements of the syllabus that aren't flying related?
3: Yeah, there's. Um, we obviously have our core syllabus, which is orientated towards passing the student out as a competent um, pilot to then go forwards to single service training, Mm -hmm. continuation training, but there are other elements uh, that they get involved in. Um, Probably the first uh, one that they do is when they um, uh, successfully complete their first solo in a helicopter, Um, they have obviously the obvious celebrations, um, but followed by um, going out to work on a community project um, in the local area. And that could be anything from sort of helping a school build a fence to a homeless shelter in the local town, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, redecoration or something. Um, Something to get their um, faces into the public and uh, promote what we're we're doing here with the local community. Community relations Uh, are very important. Community relations. There's also other wider stuff, um, wider tri-service education that we try and encompass here uh, on top of that. And that can take the format of um, keynote speeches that happen, um, here from other parts of the services, or indeed other parts of life, uh, we have dinner nights that are run throughout the um, throughout the year. There's not three single service dinner nights that are run, which also involves education of you know previous battles and conflicts, etc. Um, and just many different things there that encompass that sort of wider tri-service training for the young students, um, help them build up their you know, values and standards and ethos uh, that uh, we promote within the three services.
0: Okay. Uh, on the basic course, do they get involved in cockpit resource management?
3: They have a, um, they, they, there's an element of the ground four-week ground school. Um, they uh, do a, Uh, crew resource management human factors package uh, which is their sort of foundation package before uh, they then go into continuation training throughout the rest of their careers so it's all started at the grand school phase when they arrive here
2: that that also goes towards a bit of team building (coughs) because some of these guys haven't seen each other through flying training before so we get them together they go out into the the local area into Shropshire, do a bit of walking bit of map reading working together climbing the local hills um and then at the end of that couple of days, they have to present a report back to the senior officer on how they would achieve the task that was given to them, which vary very much so. We've also got an awful lot of uh, emphasis on sport here. There's a Station Commanders' Cup where all the different courses that come through compete against each other. So it's all about building uh, teamwork, bonding, um, and the great thing is these guys which never used to happen when I came through flying training, is that there's a bond that develops this early stage in flying training that when they come to go on operations in two, three years' time, they will bump into each other and they will know each other. Mm -hmm. So it's an important stage of their flying training.
0: Particularly in
2: uh, in ops with helicopters is now under one
0: sort of umbrella organisation so I presume they're all sort of mixing together.
3: Absolutely exactly as Scotty says I mean over 13 years ago we went through our single service training from start to the end we didn't really understand the other two services we didn't really work with them now in operations we're obviously working as a joint helicopter force most of the time and these guys um, have started their rotary training together all three services they'll then separate but ultimately, in three years' time in Afghanistan, they'll come back and they'll suddenly be doing operations together, working together, and actually, because of where they started, probably have a greater mutual respect for each other mm-hmm. as well. Um, and it just um, uh, is, is fantastic. It's something that we didn't get prior to the Defence Helicopter School formation. Good stuff.
2: It's true. The, the, the school's output, about 85% of our output, goes to the Joint Helicopter Command. The other 15%, which I deal with, um, I send to... Um, Grey Navy, and they'll go out there, and they will, they will fly the the Lynx Mark Threes and Eights, uh, or they'll go down to Cordova and they'll fly the Merlin. So those guys we stream off and away, and and they probably won't see their course comrades for a few years, uh, but but the the chances they will do. Okay, so that
0: takes us to the end of the basic training. They then what, constantly getting assessed. You you either go then onto the The more advanced training or not?
3: Yeah, basically the first part of the course is really to provide that durable foundation of flying skills. They're all basic skills. They'll then move on to the advanced phase on both squadrons um, and start to learn the more applied flying techniques like instrument flying, night flying, navigation. Um, So they're moving on to um, slightly more difficult um, skill sets, uh, which sets them up then for the single service training and to move forwards from that. Right, do all
0: services stay for the advanced
2: Yeah, very much so. In fact, we've recently introduced a common final handling test and uh, a graduation date where the core syllabus that all the students here sit that. If there's anything extra that's required by single services, then we add it on afterwards um, as a lead-in course. Um, The Royal Navy do an element of formation flying, and then overlaid on top of that, we look at developing their mission management. And again, this is done for those that I stream off to go down to the Royal Navy that will eventually be flying single-pilot aircraft off the back of a ship right, at night. Right. Uh, so it's important that we select the right cadre of pilots. Okay.
0: And again, as we did on the basic course, can you just give me a quick run-through of the syllabus for the, the advanced?
2: Yeah, I mean, very much so. The guys arrive having done <coughs> the extra three or four days ground school, um, which just refreshes the, the, the type of instruments that we're going to use and some of the navigational techniques. The first thing that we get them to do after a week of no flying um, is we put a hood on them and take them up and they do uh, eight hours instruction on instrument flying. It is an introduction to instrument flying, how to use the instruments, which they've already done our basics during the fixed-wing flying, but it's now putting that into a helicopter environment. They will fly a couple of approaches uh, and then it will culminate with a test, um, which is almost up to an instrument rating standard, but they don't have enough hours on type for that to count. On completion of the instrument phase, we will introduce them to navigation. Now, most services or areas that we operate in at the moment emphasise the use of low-level navigation. So we're very lucky here in Shropshire uh, to have such a rich area for navigation training. We've got the uh, the mountains off uh, towards Wales, uh, very close to us. We've also got the, the flatlands as well for, for route selection. We then introduce uh, confined areas where, giving the guys... Um, something to aim for, so that their navigation is not just going around Shropshire, it's actually to find targets and to find confined areas to place the aircraft in, which was, right from the beginning, we're simulating what they're going to be doing on operations. Um, And then we combine those uh, at the end of that phase with a navigation test, uh, an hour and a quarter, where they will have to do... Elements of medium-level navigation, which is uh, 1,000 feet, and then they'll drop down to low level, down to as low as 100 feet, uh, before they find a confined area, do a recce, and then go in. Uh, They then have to do elements of uh, spot navigation, which is where we give them a point. They have to plan it in the air and then navigate to it and find it. So that's that's more uh, off-the-cuff, a bit more pressure for them to do, uh, but they still stick to the standard techniques. Uh, on completion of the navigation phase, we then uh, do some general handling just to keep their handling skills up to speed because they've been working as a non-handling pilot, which requires them not to fly the aircraft but able to read the map. So they may some of their skills may have washed away. Mm-hmm. We also introduce them to night flying. Now, we just do uh, what what I know as conventional night flying um, we don't do night vision goggle flying here or night vision devices uh, on the single engine aircraft, but they do when they move on to the twin engine stage. So the night phase is all about building their confidence in operating the aircraft in the local area, uh, which they are familiar with. Uh, we actually send them solo at night. So that's all about building and developing their, com- uh, their uh, confidence before we then uh, move on to the workup for the final handling test which is an intense period of three sorties with a solo, and then they get a test at the end of that, which includes or could include an element of any one of those phases except the bit at night.
0: Right. And most of the ops in Afghanistan at night?
3: There's a lot. Of the, I mean, there's a lot of day ops and night ops, okay. and it depends on um, certain phase, moon okay. phases, moon phases, etc., as to whether they've got the ability to fly on their night vision goggles. And obviously, the Apache helicopter works off the thermal imaging uh, devices as well. So,
0: um, yes, there are a lot, uh, but a uh, lot of day ops as well. Okay. I don't think we actually mentioned what aircraft they train on, but it's all on the Squirrel. Uh,
3: within our squadrons, uh, we're f- we're um, flying off the yeah the as three hundred and fifty Squirrel. Um, we have two types, HT1 and HT2, which is basically an MVG modified squirrel helicopter. Not that we do, as already discussed, um, NVG operations, but uh, yes, yeah, it's just squirrel before they move on to their con- single-service training. NVG, night vision goggles? Night vision
0: goggles. Okay. All right, just uh, on a, a personal note, why did you guys join up? Zog, <laughs> so you go um, first. <coughs>
3: I... Um, I come from a very strong family background within the Army. Uh, I was never pushed to join the Army. Um, I started off life after school as an international sports person decided that wasn 't uh, happening the right way and as soon as I showed an interest firstly in helicopters and secondly in the Army, uh, my father was very good at directing me in the right direction to um, to have a look at whether that was going to continue to be an aspiration of mine um, and it was and uh, then it was a um, basically starting up, um, jumping each hurdle uh, to the point where you eventually come out the other end as a qualified pilot, having done officer training and all the interview processes that goes with it for both so pilot training. ideal job for you? Uh, it was fantastic,
0: yeah. You love every day? Still do. <laughs> Scotty? <coughs> You're smirky. It's not quite
2: as clean cut as. <laughs> it's not. No. I, I joined the Royal. For a long while. Indeed, I, I joined the Royal Navy because my parents were both in the Royal Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably not the place to discuss that here and now. No, I actually joined the Royal Navy because the school I went to, Warmford Comprehensive School, um, in <clears throat> in Wiltshire, had a picture up on the wall of a, a Reginald Warmford, who I got intimate with. The picture that is. Uh, because I had to write an essay about him, and that was w- where I learnt about uh, the Royal Flying Corps, the Royal Naval Air Service, and the fact that you could fly helicopters at sea from the back of ships, and that just struck an accord with me. Um, I'd been around aviation all my life, as a sailor, because of my father, um, but it, it, didn't, it wasn't quite what I wanted, and when, when there was that extra little bit about being able to do aviation at sea, then, yeah, that, uh, that was my focus. And through a lot of luck and hard work, um, I'm here now and, and I wouldn't change it for the world, but I think you know, one of the strengths of the school here is it now brings together all these three services mm-hmm. uh, and one of our strengths is the banter and the comradeship that we've got. Uh, I'm just quite proud to be in the Royal Navy or the Royal Naval element of the services of today.
0: Yeah. Uh, from an outsider's point of view it just makes so much sense to have joined everything together talking to people every service seems to do things slightly differently they've got different names for everything different acronyms for everything so to bring everything together just seems to have been whoever thought of it brilliant idea and
3: that's going to continue as well um if we look at the programmes that are coming up, um, we've got the new Wildcat programme, which is the Future Links programme for the Navy and the Army. There will be tr- elements of that training which will bring the Navy and the Army back together to go through a conversion onto that particular aircraft before they then specialise in their roles on that aircraft. Okay. So it's, um, it's, it's increasing,
2: uh, the amount of time together. It is, but I, I think the, the joint element of the school works because of the individual elements, the individual services, the individual ethos that the three services brings, I, I think, and that's an Im- important part to understand about jointery here okay. at the school. But right from the beginning, through single service dinners, we still drive home the importance of single service ethos, and I think that's what makes the jointery so strong.
0: Good. And also in talking to folks, you seem to have lots of benefits of. Uh being in the forces in, in terms of, you know, you can go off and do Scotty, you do your hand gliding, is it? Yeah. But you're yeah. not supposed to be talking about that, otherwise you, we'd be here for hours.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, we probably would. It, it's, it's the whole lifestyle, actually. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle, you know, right from the beginning. You, you don't work nine till five. Uh, very few of us do. Uh, you know, it's it, suffice to say that uh, after 22 years, I'm still in and I'm not looking to leave. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, job security, of course, um, pension, uh, the pay itself, um, stability. You could argue both ways on that one, but at, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's a very, very good job.
0: And ops-wise, helicopters are here to stay, aren't they?
2: It's certainly a.
3: Um a growth area on operations, especially in the nature of the operations that we've uh, been working in in these austere environments of Iraq in the past, Afghanistan at the moment, and uh, I think the common uh, point that comes back from post um, operational reports is uh, we need more helicopters, um, we need better capability in our helicopters. So it's certainly probably if there is a growth area, the one growth area there is within the um, within aviation in the military at the moment. Okay. Have you
0: guys served abroad?
3: I've served uh, abroad um, on operations in Iraq, Bosnia and Ireland, but obviously done other exercises um, in places like Canada, America, France. Um, but uh, being in the Army, we tend to stay set, uh, stay within the UK uh, until we're actually posted somewhere, whereas in the Navy it's slightly
0: different. How so?
2: I joined the Navy in 1990 when uh, we still had the... Uh, fixed-wing aviation embarked on carriers, so my job, anti-submarine helicopter uh, warfare pilot of the first four years in the Navy I was three years embarked on aircraft carrier served South China Sea, Hong Kong, back through the Indian Ocean into the Gulf for the first time and then predominantly operated in the Mediterranean uh, during uh, Bosnia and former Yugoslavia prior to an exercise with the Americans then I came this way through helicopter instruction before going back and flying Lynx off the back of frigates and destroyers where I then operated Mediterranean in the Gulf. Um, I've also been fortunate enough to be on the the, uh, lead in for the, the new Wildcat Lynx project where I worked in Thailand for two years introducing the Super Lynx helicopter to the Royal Thai Navy. So, yeah, I mean, the opportunity for travel is still there. Um, and never a dull day. Never a dull day, <laughs> yeah. Interdispersed with uh, operations as well.
0: So now you're in nice, settled jobs. Is this where you're going to stay now till retirement?
2: <laughs> uh, unfortunately with the Army, uh, and it's
3: probably similar to the Navy, uh, we tend to be moved around every two to three years uh, when you're still serving. Obviously there are options if you were to retire to remain here as um, a civilian instructor ex-military, and actually both, both of us within our command have about 40% of our commanders actually civilian instructors that are ex-military that remain here after their military service to uh, um, keep the continuity, if you like, within the squadrons and also
2: they've got vastly experienced as well um, to, in helping students get through their courses. Yeah, of course, when I talk about stability, I mean stability for my family because I'm coming to the end of my time uh, and I'm about to move back into the Royal Navy where I will operate out of either Yeovilton or down at Portsmouth. I'm off to go to the uh, Advanced Command Staff course, so that's a period, nine-month, ten-month period. Back at school, learning to read and write. So, no, we don't. We don't really stick around very long. Um, there are people who can uh, have a job in one area for a long period of time. That doesn't suit me. I'm, to be honest, quite quite looking forward to. We still be uh, training people to fly
0: helicopters. do you say going into some other.
2: I think it's my uh, my term or my time in my career to uh, hang up my flying gloves for for a couple of years at least, and then come back into flying training next generation but uh, hopefully it's not the end of my flying
0: when you say you get moved around it does seem that you have a fair amount of influence over that And know there's an, an operational requirement but it does seem that people i've spoken to they say well you know i prefer to go and do this and that's what you I'm can going.
3: um you generally get a preference um yeah. sheet to fill out and uh, your aspirations maybe to go maybe to go to one place or the other and hopefully they can uh, make that fit to the wider plot of where everybody goes to. Before I arrived in this job, I had four years of desk jobs, Um, so I'm happy to be back in the flying environment again. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, the next job, again, is going to be uh, at a desk job uh, where they need to utilise your experience in the cockpit, but actually um, in a um, desk-bound job, uh, whether it's orientated towards procurement um, or technology advancement or whatever it happens to be. Um, You've got to come out of the cockpit every now and then. Uh, to uh, pass on that uh, experience
2: yeah I think you have an element of uh, control over your destiny but you uh, you have to understand that there's needs of the individual needs of the service and mm-hmm. you know these are regularly tripped off phrases by career managers and appointers and people that move you around um, But we've only got two naval air stations, uh, three if you include the joint one here. So the chances are you're going to end up at one of those three places. And most of us choose to leave our families in one place um, and then commute. Um, You could end up in London or down in Portsmouth. Depends which way you want to go or depends which way the senior officers want you to go. But uh, if you don't like it, then I, I suppose towards the end of your career, you've always got the option to leave.
0: Okay. If you were uh, 15 or 16 nowadays, would you do the same thing again?
2: I've got no
3: complaints whatsoever with my 18 years in the service. Um, Yes, I'd rather have been flying instead of doing four years of desk jobs before this job, Um, but ultimately you've got to understand that if you're going to get promoted at the right times, you've got to do these jobs, so um, I wouldn't change anything about uh, joining up again at um, 18 years old when I did.
2: Scotty? Yeah, I'd definitely join the Navy again. I think the future helicopters which are coming in, it's just incredibly exciting about what they're going to get to fly, the technology that they've got, um, all right, the operational tours that they're doing, I would say, are a lot crunchier than what I had to do uh, coming out of the back end of the Cold War, but uh, the equipment that they've got um, to do the job is, without a doubt, second to none. Although you could argue that if I was part of the uh, PlayStation era, then the, the fun and thrill of playing PlayStation, um, they may not perceive that that's uh, as much fun as doing it for real. But mm. believe me, um, I still feel like I'm 15 or 16. What are you talking about anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd do it all over again without a doubt. do right. Do you guys fly anything in your,
0: in your spare time apart from you? Hang gliders that we're not allowed
2: to mention you can mention hang gliders yeah i've been flying uh <laughs> been flying hanggliders gliders for 16 years i've also done an element of uh fixed wing flying um bit of par- parachuting so yeah I, I think aviation's in the blood if you like it then you do it every opportunity yeah i've done a bit, I've
3: done a bit of sporadic fixed wing flying during my rotary career but i've also just um, been doing my civil licenses in preparation for if i ever wanted to um, leave the army um so i've been doing a bit of civilian flying as well at the same time as like commercial license. Yeah, commercial licenses, yep. um, instrument ratings, etc. Yeah, excellent. And this is all allowed by the uh,
0: armed services and. Yes, and in fact,
3: them. and in fact, um, yeah, they contribute um, in some cases to uh, the funding for that. Small amounts, um, but it's it's effectively a retention incentive yep. um, to, to keep you around and uh, hopefully utilise your experience as much as possible before you do retire.
0: Brilliant. OK, that's, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, guys. No, yeah, you're welcome. Shippo. Thanks again to Major Vagintsov of 660 Squadron and Lieutenant Commander Scott of 705 Squadron. And uh, thanks to all of those people at DHFS who made me feel very welcome during my stay here at Shawbury. Uh, whether or not you agree with the politics of wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, the guys here are doing a brilliant job and, to me at least, seem to be going about their business uh, in an extremely professional manner. Uh, I'll be producing a couple more episodes over the coming weeks featuring interviews with other people from DHFS. Um, That would include uh, squadron leader Jason Bowes and Master Aircrew Graham Longmuir from 60 Squadron, who are responsible for training pilots and crewmen on multi-engine helicopters. And uh, I'll also be talking to a couple of RAF students and Corporal Neil Moncur, Head of Flight Planning, and lastly to Paul Gresty of the Met Office. Please don't forget, if you'd like to support the podcast and help to contribute to my ever-increasing hosting fees, uh, please follow the links to Amazon that you'll find on my website. Uh, That's flyingpodcast.co.uk. Any purchases that you make there will provide a small commission to me, but doesn't affect the price that you pay. Uh, I recently met uh, Sheila Dyson, who featured in an earlier podcast episode. Uh, She'd flown to Australia in her single-engine Cessna, uh, and now intends to fly uh, around the world. That'll be next year. Uh, she mentioned to me that she's looking for a co-pilot to share the flying and some of the expenses. Uh, they'll be leaving from Netherthorpe, that's uh, in Yorkshire, um, and going east, and the flight is expected to take approximately three months. The co-pilot should have uh, an FAA instrument rating. Uh, so if anyone out there is interested or you know of someone, please uh, send your inquiry to uh, Sheila. Uh, including you uh, the personal details on an email to her address which is s c dyson that 's all one word s c d y s o n six o six at bt dot com s c d y s o n six o six at Bt dot com i'll put the details upon the Flying podcast website for uh, those are the uh, those of you that need it Uh, And uh, lastly, here's a message from a couple of guys that produce one of my favorite aviation podcasts.
2: G'day folks, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, And we're from the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast here in sunny Melbourne, Australia. That's right folks, we're coming to you from the bottom of the world. We're down here giving you all sorts of fun reviews on aviation in Australia.
3: We've got opinionated news reviews, interviews with really cool pilots. We've got discussions with all
2: sorts of people from journalists, air traffic controllers and aviation analysts. So if you're into aviation on any level, check us out in iTunes or visit our website at www www.planecrazydownunder.com and remember it's what's down under that counts
0: well that's it for episode 26 uh, if you have any comments uh, suggestions for future episodes or, or like stew you'd like to take part uh, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk and don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook by searching for Flying Podcast or click on the Twitter and Facebook links on the website. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.